Hello, and welcome to the Natural Dye Podcast, a place to hear the voices of individuals using color from nature. My name is Kelsey, and I'll be your host today. Donna Brown is a fiber artist from Denver, Colorado, with over 30 years of natural dyeing and teaching experience. She's a member of the Rocky Mountain Weavers Guild and helps to run the Janice Ford Memorial Dye Garden at the Denver Botanic Gardens Chatfield Farms. In this episode, Donna recounts her journey with natural dyes and how she helped to start a now thriving community natural dye garden. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Natural Dye Podcast. Alyssa showed us what to do, Hi, I'm, I'm Donna Brown. I live in Denver, Colorado, and I've lived here for almost 25 years. Um, well, over 25 years now. Um, I started my natural dye path back in the ni- early 1990s. Um, I was a, I'm a weaver and a spinner and love sewing, anything to do with, with fiber. And um, I joined the Handwork Guild of Alder. That's where we lived at the time. And they do um, bring in all kinds of guest um, guest people for workshops and lectures and that sort of thing. And to my um, my joy, Michelle Whiplinger was um, was coming and doing workshops um, at, for the Boulder Guild, and that was my introduction to natural dyes. And I mainly took the took natural dye classes because I wanted to dye my, my own yarn for weaving. So that even though you can go to a yarn store and, and the colors are great, something about making it from that standpoint um, just made sense to me. And then when I learned to spin, it just became full circle. So um, Michelle was my mentor for many, many years. Um, I just adored her and she knew so much and did so much for the community of the natural dye world. And um, what was unique about her at the time is she brought the concept of natural dye extracts to the table which um, opened a whole world of possibilities for um, doing things with surface design and block printing and silk screening and all of those things that um, make it really difficult when you're going down the, what I call the twig and berry approach, which I do now too, but, um, but not for the other sorts of things. Um, so as she came, I partnered with someone and we just started working together and learning to figure all this out. And um, in in the process, we ended up making a lot of product. So then it was like, what are we doing with all this product? So then we had a a line of scarves and men's ties and I sewed women's jackets and we sold them to um, a lot of art museum gift shops and guild um, sales. And we have open studios at the studio and sell our work there to help um, keep our love for the dyes going because even back then they were expensive. So, um, so with that in mind, we started right when the internet and you could start Googling for things came about, um, we started looking to see if we could get the dyes ourselves. Um, and lo and behold, we figured out how to do that. So we started ordering our own dyes from South America and India. Um, trying to think where else we ordered them from Germany. So anyway, we started down this path. And when our friends learned that we were ordering dyes, they asked if we could order some for them as well. So we started ordering for this friend and that friend. And that ended up turning into a, a dye business. It was called the Dye Works. We owned the Dye Works for a number of years. Um, 
So, and the best way to sell dyes is to teach people how to use them. So that started my career in teaching. So um, we could, we had a lovely studio in Boulder that we could offer workshops in and it had a nice outside area and we would bring in um, people that we knew in the natural dye world that we wanted to learn from like John Marshall. Um, we brought Michelle back in, Michelle Whitlinger, um, a number of people that could teach us different things. So that was really quite fun. And that went on for a number of years until my husband bought a company in Littleton, Colorado, which was about an hour and a half drive from Boulder. And the drive just got too much for me. I just couldn't do it anymore. So we sold the business to um, two lovely ladies in um, outside Colorado Springs, Colorado. And um, they bought the business, the website, the, the supplier list, um, everything about the company. Um, and they named it Table Rock Llamas Fiber Art Studio. You may be familiar with that. Um, and yes, Valerie does have llamas. And so that was why um, she had sheep. And her, her, her sister-in-law, Chris, the two that owned the company, um, she had sheep and Chris bought Valerie a llama to guard the sheep. And that turned into a passion for llamas. So that started that. Um, I stayed on as their um, dye rep. And whenever they got um, new products and I would test for them and do that sort of thing. And they built a lovely building with a, um, a workshop space. So then I taught for them quite a bit because there again, to, to be able to sell the dyes, you need to teach people how to use them. So there we go on that front. So that, that happened up until about two years ago when um, with all the pandemic and everything else, um, Table Rock is no longer around, which is really sad. So um, now I'm, I'm a big supporter of Maywa Foundation up in Canada. Um, I've met Charlotte and Sophina took some workshops from them and I just think their, their work is fabulous and they support so many artisans. So, so right now that's, that's who I, I love and support and get my product from when I need it. So, um, so that was, that's kind of my, my pathway on that. But um, so when we sold the business, then I started teaching at craft schools. I've taught at Penland a number of times, John C. Campbell folk school, um, Shake Greg workshops. Um, so anyway, I still travel and teach. Um, it's taken me to Germany to teach um, there. Um, I have a project where I worked with um, Deborah Chandler, who is the classic author of the uh, weaving, uh, learning to weave um, book. She visited me one time in my studio and she said, could you teach my weavers how to get these colors? And I said, of course. So um it was, she was here for a conference that Catherine Ellis was also part of. And so Catherine and I agreed to go down and teach one of her groups of weavers how to, how to naturally dye. It's, it, the project's called Tintus Naturalis. So you can look that up, um, but it's been a wonderful project for these women in Guatemala. It's, it's changed their lives. So it's really humbling to know you have a craft that you can share with other people, bring them back to the roots of their traditions which they remembered their grandmother doing these things, but they didn't remember. But they also remember trying to get um, flowers out of the yarn as little girls. And so with the, with the concept of the extracts, um, that really worked well for them. So we were able to give them um, extracts 
that um, they could use that made the, the dyeing process um, much easier. And they sell now a kit uh, mainly through Cotton Clouds. It's called um, um, Weave from Your Loom from Guatemala or something along that line. So they have a line of naturally dyed yarns that they, um, they sell. They still sell them today. They get orders for say 200 pounds of yarn and they work on balling it up and packaging it in a really slick way. And um, so that project has been going on for, ooh, I don't know, maybe 10 years now. So it's been a really valuable thing. So that's kind of um, what, what I've done kind of in a short cliff note sort of way. Um, but my, I've been doing this for, you know, 25, 30 years and I just love it. So, um, and I, I think I mentioned the fact that extracts allow a lot of other possibilities. So I studied with Jane Dunnewald to learn surface design techniques. Um, I studied with her and um, then it took me a year to translate her, her techniques of synthetic dyes to a natural dye process. So I do teach um, surface design, um, skein painting, all those things are, are valuable tools that you can do as a fiber artist that don't necessarily lend themselves to um, flowers um, quite as easily. But now I've gotten fascinated with making lake pigments and watercolors, and I've been teaching um, classes on that, which is also really fun to take it back to what artisans until the 1850s used to use. So um, that makes it really kind of rewarding too, is just to feel that you're back in that traditional method of making things. My sister's a wall artist, so my plan is to give her a whole series of these paints to use in a series that um, she could do with the natural dye product watercolors. So um, she primarily uses gouache, so I still need to figure out. I think it's easy to do. I haven't made any gouache yet, but um, right now I'm still getting the roots of the watercolors down. So, um, so anyway, um, when we moved to Littleton, I joined the Rocky Mountain Weavers Guild and um, have really enjoyed that group a lot. And um, nine years ago, um, one of our members, Janice Ford, um, passed away early. And um, her family really didn't know what she had in terms of weaving tools. She was a dyer, but not a natural dyer. I never knew Janice, but um, a lot of the members of the guild helped the family figure out, um, any five artists knows what kind of stash you accrue over time. So um, she had weaving, spinning yarn, dye materials and things like that. So the guild helped the family sort it out and get it sold and that sort of thing. So as a thank you for the guild doing that, the Ford family gave the guild um, a generous contribution. And so the guild contacted me and said, you know, because um, Janice loved color so much, would you be willing to do a workshop with these color with, um, for the guild? And just as a sidebar, where we live right now, I can see the Deborah Botanic Gardens from my, my backyard, and I'm a big walker. So I would walk down to this Botanic Gardens, and it's not, we have two Botanic Gardens um, in, in the area in Colorado. One is downtown where it's the more coiffed Rose Garden and Lilac Garden. And then Chatfield Farms is an old homestead, 740 acres, and it was owned by the Hildebrands. And um, so there's an old um, homestead building there. There's a cutting garden. There's a herb garden. 
there's rescue animals. They have a pumpkin patch. They have a corn maze. They have, you know, just like a traditional farm. And um, as I'm walking through there for years, I've looked and thought, you know, they need a dye garden down here. It just fits the whole homestead concept. And any friend that would come visit me from out of town, I'd take them down there and I would say, it's someday we're going to have a dye garden down here. And so um, when they told me about this generous contribution from the Ford family, um, I had the, the kind of the liaison ask the family if they would be open to us starting a dye garden in Janice's name. So that was the concept of the Janice Ford Memorial Dye Garden. And um, so that was step one. Step two was figuring how to convince the gardens they needed this. So I made an appointment and cold called the director, Larry Vickerman, at the, dog, at the Botanic Gardens with a check in hand, which doesn't hurt things so much. And um, I said, what do you think? And I said, you know, we, it can be a collaboration. And he said, I think it's a great idea. We've never done this before. Let's, you know, take it one step at a time, but um, let's give it a try. And so they have an old schoolhouse on the site that was moved from another area on the homestead. And he offered us this building to meet and plan out the garden. And um, when springtime came, he um, met us one day and he said, take a walk around and tell us where you want. I mean, he just gave us fair game. And so we walked around and we found an area that was kind of close to where the animals are and the cutting garden and the homestead. And um, it used to be an old seedling patch. So it had water accessibility. It had some shade trees. So we thought this would be a good place for it. So we carved it out. And um, that was kind of the start of the plot. And um, so then we had some planning meetings with Larry and a horticulture person that was assigned to work with us about size and then we started working on plants so that started a study group with our guild our guild has weaving study groups you know beginning and advanced and spinning and knitting and so it just became a logical thought to have a natural dye study group as part of the guild so we started with about eight people and we all just I made a template up and I said okay let's go through some of our, the dye plant books and let's figure out what we want to plant and this was new territory for me too, because I really didn't, I, I knew where all the natural dye extracts came from, but I've never grown them. I, you know, I'm a gardener. I have a xeriscape perennial garden in my yard. I have no grass, but I really wasn't sure about all of this. So we all had templates and, and so we, we did research and I'd say um, Jenny Dean and Rita Buchanan were our two go-to books. There's a lot of other books too, but those were our two mainstays and there's lots of information on the web too so so we had all these papers on the table trying to decide what we wanted to plant and we decided we wanted to do a variety of things we had some focused things one we wanted the garden to have plants where people walked in and they said would say i don't know there was marigolds would give you color i didn't know that um hollyhocks could give you color or rebecca so we wanted plants that were familiar to people and then we also knew we had to plant indigo, you know, who doesn't love blue and indigo and fresh indigo leaves. So that's our biggest plot down at the garden um, is our indigo patch because we just love it. And then we wanted plants that represented the Southwest, 
you know, giving honor to our area. So we picked Coda Navajo tea that grows wild in New Mexico. We picked Hopi sunflowers that are just spectacular. They're like the flowers are like dinner plates. They're just great. Um, and then we went to, and then we also grew chamomile. So we're planning a tea party this year with our Navajo tea and our chamomile. And I think it's one of the plants that's supposed to give us, um, we can drink it. So we plan all kinds of fun things. So um, what's really nice about the collaboration is um, because it's a botanic gardens, they have greenhouses, they have um, ace propagators, uh, propagators of um, the seeds. So um, usually about right after the holidays, I'll order all the seeds and then deliver them to the botanic gardens. And then they take care of germinating all the seeds, which is really wonderful. Um, we do have a few perennials in, in the garden. Um, the chamomile for sure. We also have matter. We knew we needed the three traditional plants, indigo, matter, um, which the roots are the part that give you the color, and also weld, which is honoring. We have a weld canny just north of here. So, and weld is, um, you know, just another really tried and true colorant. So um, the well just comes back in vengeance. We have to be careful. We've already harvested the flowers because we don't want seeds scattered everywhere. And our matter is somewhat out of control at the moment. We did two raised beds, trying to keep it contained. And then the roots take three years to harvest, you know, before the colorants, good to harvest. So we alternate the years that way. Um, with the pandemic, it's kind of taken out of control and, and they're a little bit older than they should be, but they'll be fine. So um, so anyway, the first year we we um, we got the we got the all the plants delivered. Um, the the um, the donation that we got from the Ford family did the initial seed money, so to speak, um, with being able to, you know, tend to the soil. And because it was a seedling garden before, the soil was in really good shape. So we did, you know, we did manage to, you know, get it all worked out, put in irrigation, you know, irrigate, we use drip tubes that we change out every year. And then also money to build a fence because we have deer here, we have elk, we have lots of animals that would just love our garden. So um, the wood was ordered. And then the two, um, we have a gym, which is kind of the maintenance guy down at the gardens was, um, was the fellow that was in charge of putting up the fence. And he had some sort of family concern that year. I can't remember exactly what it was, but anyway, the fence didn't get built right away. But he, and he had a series of um, volunteers that helped him, but he cut all of the slats to be in tune with the rest of the homestead fences. And that was really fun. So he, so we went ahead and planted the garden without the fence and just crossed our fingers. And finally things started happening midsummer with the fence. And I got, went down there almost every day, bringing him cookies and treats just to thank him and iced tea because I think it's, it was hot. And um, he just did a, a, a an ace job. Um, but before the fence was all the way done, um, a group of school kids came through and they were leaning um, the, the, the horizontal bars were put up at the top pillars were not yet. And, um, the kids were leaning over that fence, gawking into the garden. And the group of us that was there at the time, all of us looked at each other at the same time and thought, oh my gosh, 
when the fence goes up, we're not going to, no one's going to be able to see in the garden. So, but it wasn't too late to do something about it. So the group that was there looked at me and said, you need to take care of this. I thought, oh, okay. So, and I had told the group early on, I don't mind taking the lead on this, but I can't do this all by myself. We're all going to have to do our part. And I have to say, this group is just amazing. Anytime I say, like I said years ago, wouldn't it be nice if we had a Facebook page so we could ask questions? And someone raised their hand and said, I'll do that. Anytime I ask, and that's not normal for a group. Usually it's a few that do the, the load of the work and the rest of it is, you know, followers. This group is not like that at all. So I went down the next day and talked to Cowboy Jim, as we call him. He wears, he has the belt buckle and the hat and the truck and the boots and the whole thing. And I said, you know, we're not quite sure what to do about this, but we really don't think we want to block it in completely. So we sat down and, and looked at it. And so we ended up doing three cutouts that look like windows, which mean come look through me. And they're the height for kids. So it was a perfect solution. So that problem was solved. And um, the fence is great. And um, Jim decided we needed um, a concrete slab, you know, so if we had to haul things in on wheels, we could do it. So when he put the concrete in, he put his signature um, shoe horse, horseshoe in the, in this concrete kind of as his signature. I was here and this was my work, which was really fun. So um, that was year one and we were just learning a lot. And most of the plants that we have today are still the plants that we're using. The one that was, was, was a disappointment to us was um, amaranth, which in a lot of the healthy sunflower books indicated it's a colorant. I did everything to Sunday to try and get that to give us dye. I finally decided it was the red seeds and the amaranth flowers that would color their cornbread and things. It really wasn't a dye stuff that was soluble. So we, we, we took that out and we put in dyer's broom instead, which is a lovely perennial and gives really pretty sweet little flowers. And then since then, we've also added, we do three different varieties of marigolds, the French and the um, African, and now we're doing Mexican, which is a third one that blooms later in the summer. So it's, it's, and it's a sweet little flower too. So um, just to, I think I mentioned most of the plants that are there. We do have black hollyhocks, the sunflowers, um, indigo, of course. We do three different colors of cosmos, um, the red, yellow, and orange, and they do yield slightly different colors. And two different dyers coreopsis, the typical ones that you, you see with the red center and the yellow petals. And then we do a coreopsis roulette, which is solid red. And it's really pretty too, so they complement each other. And um, we also have put in yarrow just because we like the texture of the, of the leaves. I can't say the color is all that exciting. So we're trying to, and it's very evasive. So we're trying to keep that, that part of the plant, plant um, um, footprint smaller. And we have weld and dyer's chamomile. We had really good luck with our Hopi sunflowers the first year. And then after the first year, they just didn't thrive. And so I consulted some of the horticulture staff and I said, what's going on here? And she said, they're being choked out. They like their own space. They don't really want to share with anyone. So there's, as part of the um, botanic gardens, there's a 
um, CSA, Community um, Support Agriculture Project. She said, how about I put them in a plot in our, in our garden? So they have their own little space and they just thrive over there. So um, it's just a team effort. You know, everybody just is really friendly to everyone else, which is great. So not only now does our group, we're back after the pandemic, we're able to um, harvest our plants. Um, I will put a picture of our drying rack because people are fascinated by it. Um, we harvest and then we put them in these, they're meant for drying herbs, drying, drying racks that are tiered mesh. And um, in Colorado, all of our plant materials dry by the next week. So then we have bins that we, um, we put our flowers in and they're all labeled separately. So we keep them dried so we can use them in the winter. Right now we have more plant material than we ever had because we haven't been together dying in the year and a half now. So we're dying in vengeance right now. So we have usually at least two pots going every week, which is a great way to introduce the visitors to the garden about, you know, not only are there dye plants here, but you know, how, how it all works. So that's really fun um, to have that interaction. Some of the other things that, that the garden has allowed us to do is a lot of um, interaction with, with the community. So we do workshops down there and teach people how to grow and how to, how to harvest and dye. Um, the, the Botanic Gardens has kids camps. So every session of that, we, we, we meet with the kiddos and do a project with them. Some years we've, uh, they've done um, like tie-dye bandanas and we dyed them in marigolds. They've done that. They've done weaving with us. Um, they always go in the garden and want to pick flowers. So that's pretty much what we do now with them is they just want to go in and have the experience of, you know, gardening. So, and, and then we can talk to them about the plants and that sort of thing. Um, they have a lavender festival in July. So it brings in lots of people. I don't know. They are doing it this year. I'm, I think it's going to be a more ticketed event this year with limited numbers. I'm not sure. Um, we haven't gotten all the details on that yet, but we set up um, a whole bunch of different things that people can observe. We, we bring in table looms and we bring um, spinning wheels. We have what we call a dye buffet. So on the table, I have um, the plant material, colored liquids that, that are made from the, from the plants, and then dyed material with it so people can see what the plants yield in terms of colors. Um, some years we've done silk painting with the natural dyes and the, and we have one big piece that people can just, the kids can paint on and they always become really fun. Um, and then there's lots of um, groups that like to come through for um, tours like the Perennial Plant Society and the um, Denver Herb Guild. And we've done tours for the docents of the Botanic Garden. So it's offered us all sorts of opportunities to highlight what we do. Um, and then it's sent me to all kinds of different places to lecture. I've talked to the Texas Society of America um, conference in Savannah a few years ago. Um, so it's just a fun way for me to meet others and to um, highlight what we do. So it's been a pretty fun activity. I must say, when we first started this activity, I could not have predicted where it is, where it would be today. This is our eighth year. We're kind of on a path where, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel anymore. We're kind of a well-oiled machine at this point. You're always trying to fine tune and make it better, but, um, but it's just a really fun project. And we have a lot of people joining our guild just 
because they want to be part of the guard, which is great. There's about, I think there's close to 30 of us now. So the mantra of many hands make light work, it certainly fits in this case. So when we had to lay mulch on the pathways in the garden um, a couple of weeks ago, we were done in an hour with two with two wheelbarrows and you know multiple rakes and it just got done. So, so Donna, what do you envision for the future of natural dyes? That's a good question. Um, natural dyes in the future. I in, in my in my um, hopeful world, I would love to see more. Um, fashion and things happening with natural dyes. I also think it's probably not practical for many reasons. When you look at the acreage it takes to grow indigo leaves and um, the amount of space it takes for that kind of growing um, rather than food, um, that that, um, concerns me. I know that there are designers like Eileen Fisher that do have a line of naturally dyed um, clothing. So I love that. Um, the other thing about natural dyeing and probably dyeing across the board, it uses a lot of water. And I think in our world right now, that's, you know, we're, we're Lake Mead and Lake Powell are like what, at 30 or 40% capacity. That concerns me that we're using a lot of water. I, I do a lot of um, trying to be water wise with my dyeing, but, and sometimes it's just not practical. Um, I, one of my best friends lives off grid in Taos and she's a natural dyer and she collects all her water and she has a separate cistern for her dye studio. But, um, and the, the community does have a well that she has to tap into now and then, but she's, the, the amount of rinsing sometimes that things take is really concerning. And there's multiple steps. There's the mordanting, then there's the dyeing, and then there's the rinsing. And in some cases, there's a lot of scouring that needs to be done. So um, from that standpoint, I don't think it's going to, it's a practical pathway. Um, I didn't talk at all about my studio. I'm really lucky to have, I think it's almost a 1500 square foot studio. I have five looms, two spinning wheels. I have a separate dye kitchen. So I have two cooking kit. I have one kitchen downstairs with a double sink and two long um, stainless steel tables um, with two shelves above it that have all the extracts. I mean, it's, um, it's kind of daunting. I've been back down there trying to organize right now because I haven't been down there very much. And um, it's really, I just can't wait to get back to work. And then my cooking area is outside. So I have eight, eight, 10 burners that um, are hooked up to my gas um, from the house. They're the Camp Chef, bur- um, you know, cooking gas burners. So I have two that are dedicated for morning which with, with huge pots and the rest are just ready to go. So, um, and it's below my deck that has a system, it's called dry below. So underneath the deck is a system that keeps the water from pouring through the slats in the deck. It goes out to a gutter. So unless snow is blowing sideways, I'm usually out there all year dying and um, having a good time with that. It's been such a pleasure hearing your story. I was also wondering um, what advice you have for those wanting to start a garden in their own community. Oh, 
Well, I guess there's a number of things, and I've actually written a a chapter in a book that's coming out this fall called Colorways on that topic. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it's called Colorways. It's in printing right now um, about considerations for a garden. So, you know, some things like accessibility to water, your zone, what plants will grow, um, the soil, you know, the size. Um, people have asked me about our garden down at the Botanic Gardens, would we want to enlarge it? And my answer is no. I mean, we have, we have enough to keep us busy and enough to um, die with that, um, you know, you have to be considerate of that. And I do have dye plants in, in my garden and some in my yard. And some years I just can't get around to harvesting everything. So, um, yeah, just just um, being thoughtful about it. and maybe start small and being able to add to it. So, um, but depending on your climate, I think uh, watering is definitely um, key. Um, there are a number of dye gardens happening around the United States. So, um, I, Texas, down in Texas, they've started one. There used to be one in Pennsylvania. Um, it's kind of a sad subject, but I lost one of my sons two years ago. And I love teaching at John C. Campbell Folk School, which is also an old, kind of an old historic um, area. So we endowed money to start a dye garden in his name at the folk school. So this will be, this is the second year. It's the Corey Brown Memorial Dye Garden. And um, we're, we're really proud of it. So it will offer opportunities in, on an educational basis too, with lots of signage and that sort of thing. So um, it's bittersweet for me. Um, and Corey was actually mentoring with me. So he would have been a natural dyer as well. He, 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 has, he had the indigo dying down for sure. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, but they seem to be popping up everywhere. And I think that's a really lovely thing. This episode of the Natural Dye Podcast has been produced by myself, Kelsey Doty, and my co-producer, Britt Bowles. Our theme song, Tinctoria, is by Liz Galorn and her band. Please make sure to support them on Bandcamp. We hope you can join us again next time, and thank you for listening to the Natural Dye Podcast. <laughs>